Hey, hey, water coolians, welcome back to another episode of This Here Podcast. In today's episode, we are joined by author Matt Alt, his latest work, Pure Invention, How Japan Made the Modern World, shares how Japanese innovations such as the Walkman, Pokemon, and Hello Kitty have significantly shaped global culture, laying the foundation for the intricacies of modern life. In our first news story, we explore the emergence of anime on the global stage thanks to the vast amounts of accessibility by modern-day streaming services such as, well, Netflix and Crunchyroll and many other options that are available to you, I guess. More specifically, its arrival from its dark, nerdy shadows, and it may coincide with the Japanese government trying to be cool for you. Then we take a closer look at the development of the karaoke machine, you know, which showcases Japan's prowess to expand their culture, even during what could have been considered a quote-unquote lost decade in the 1990s. And finally, we tie it all back together and we reconnect with our inner child and talk about how toys serve as this reflection of human and technological progress, and a bit on, you know, why it's A-OK to just enjoy being your most authentic self. So, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, this is episode 93 of Water Cooler Talk podcast titled Animatized Algorithm with Matt Alt. Enjoy! This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. Well, a legendary mid-century modern designer Charles Eames once said that Toys aren't nearly as innocent as they look. They're the prelude to serious ideas. And I really believe that. I Toys literally changed the entire direction of my life. I, I didn't just love them as avatars of my imagination or as you know stimulating things to play with, interesting things to play with. They were the direct link to me becoming interested in Japan which became my career and and even my lifestyle. So I don't just like toys. I actually owe a lot to them. I think it does really connect you with, you know, a time in your life where things were a little easier and you could, you know, take the time to enjoy what something like a toy could offer you. I mean, I remember growing up and having like all of the wrestling figures from like the WWE and the WWF. And even now in today's day and age, watching wrestling back, I'm like, okay, I'm still connecting to those moments because it was such a big part of my childhood. Well, I'm particularly interested in kind of the craftsmanship that goes into making toys, Uh, especially when I was growing up, toys were getting a lot more intricate and complicated than they had been in comparison to say, you know, the boomer generation. Things like the Transformers, which you mentioned. I mean, a lot of really complicated engineering and thinking and planning went into those. And that really, you know, it left an impression on me when I played with particularly toys from Japan. It kindled this idea in me that somewhere out there, far, far away, was this land of people who took robots as seriously as I did. (laughs) And uh, you you could see it in Japan's toys. And that was really what sort of hooked me from the very beginning. I do watch this Instagram account where they go back and look at toys that were given out for like Happy Meals or for like type of fast food promotions. And you see how much more complex the, you know, the creation and the mechanics of those toys are compared to where we are now, where you're getting basically like a sticker or a coin, or I even got a, a transformer for my five-year-old nephew for Christmas. And oh my God, it took everybody in the room like 
an entire hour to figure out how the frick do we transform right. this thing. But once you figure it out, you realize how cool all of the mechanics are to make that happen. Oh, totally. You know, back hundreds of years ago, toys were like sticks and rocks and things like that. <laughs> you know, now they're incredibly complicated playthings. And you can, they're, they're sort of a mirror for uh, human progress and technological progress as a whole. So that's another interesting way of looking at toys. Well, Matt, are you ready to jump into this first story? Talk about how the evolution of toys has made its way onto the big screens, the small screens and everything in between. I'm always ready. Awesome. To talk about toys. (laughs) (laughs) This story finds its way from Game Rant Anime written by Adarsh Aran, February 10th, 2023. How anime culture is taking over the internet. Anime, animation produced in Japan, has become a huge hit in various countries across the globe, and the industry is taking over the world with immense success. As an outcome of this, anime culture is having a massive impact on pop culture and numerous social media platforms. The international success is undeniable, with hit series such as One Piece, Cowboy Bebop, Death Note, and classics like Dragon Ball Z and Naruto gaining immense success outside of Japan. The surge can also be attributed to the popularity of anime streaming services, particularly Crunchyroll, who have played a pivotal role in making anime easily accessible. But it's not just about watching. Anime culture has seeped into the language of the internet. Fans are adopting iconic dialogues and character catchphrases from their favorite series. A few examples include from Naruto and from Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. I probably, you know, I'll probably cut in the the actual saying in the final episode so people don't know how much I butchered that. On social media, otaku, which refers to intense superfans of anime, manga, and other particular aspects of pop culture, can be found commenting on social media using Japanese terms learned from their favorite series. An interesting outcome of anime's widespread popularity is the millions who have embraced learning terms and phrases from a language different from their own. Further fueling anime's popularity is the influx of anime-based memes. Fans go wild for memes tied to their beloved series, making memes one of the most widely consumed forms of consuming anime-related content on social media platforms like Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit. Even celebrities, especially in the music scene, have embraced the anime craze. The drill rap scene, popularized by artists like Chief Keef, King Vaughn, and Pop Smoke, regularly produce anime-inspired tracks that gain massive popularities on platforms such as YouTube and Spotify. The fusion of anime and music is not a novel phenomenon. As early as 2015, Denzel Curry's viral song Ultimate featured a nod to the rejuvenation Sensu Beads, from Dragon Ball Z. Notable figures such as Megan The Stallion, director Quentin Tarantino, and wrestler, getting back to that wrestler reference, turned actor John Cena, I definitely had his figure, have all made numerous mentions of their love and admiration for the industry. The hype created by anime is only going to increase in the future thanks to the consistent release of mind-blowing series featuring compelling storylines, characters, and animation. The anime industry shows no signs of slowing down and is here to stay for a very, very long time. So Matt, in your book, Pure Invention, How Japan Made the Modern World, you mentioned the impact of the 1990 stock market crash in Japan, you know, ushering in this lost decade, which, you know, should have led to years of doom and gloom, but instead, it played this pivotal role in helping Japan cultivate the culture around anime, manga, and video games. Can you share more of that background and how we get to this moment in time where it has become a major global influence. I'm going to say two things. When you know, when you were reading that article to me, I had to laugh because I was wondering how you know young the person was who wrote it. There's a famous quote from the science fiction writer Robert Heinlein that goes something like, 
every generation thinks it invented sex, you know, because you don't really <laughs> you don't really talk about it with previous generations and you have to kind of figure it out for yourself. And so every generation thinks that they've invented this thing. But of course, they didn't. Uh, you know, sex has been with us since way before Gen Z, X, you know, boom or whatever. I think the same thing is true about anime. Every generation thinks that they have discovered anime and that it's something, you know, profoundly new and, and transformative. When in fact, actually, the entire arguably architecture of the modern internet is based on anime and has been since well before the turn of the millennium. This isn't any anime memes aren't anything new. Anime fandoms and dropping of anime lines and, and quotes on the net are nothing new. Um, it's been going on for literally decades. As to as to why Japan created this art form that so impacted the world and and why that took off so much after Japan's grand economic implosion in 1990, it's because that economic implosion was a sort of prototype for the same chaos that Western societies would be experiencing post Lehman shock and all of the kind of precarity and problems that we would associate with a kind of downward flow in the economy of, of the United States and the Western world. The tools that Japan made, or I should say the tools that Japanese young people innovated for themselves as kind of you know survival mechanisms in that era of, of the 1990s Japanese economic downturn turned out to be just the things we needed in our economic downturn that would happen a couple of decades later. Go figure. <laughs> well, I know you have talked about speaking of like, you know, it's been around for a lot longer than most people think. I know you've talked about, you know, having to find like bootlegged video cassettes, you know, that were like passed from fan to fan. And that's oh, how sure. it was, you know, discovered. But I think when we get into this internet age, everyone's like, oh, I'm the first person to discover this new thing that's been yes. around for yes. forever. Even just watching through TikTok or Instagram Reels, somebody's like, oh my gosh, I just discovered this arcade game, Space Invaders. Have any of you seen it before? Yeah, it's like, you know, I don't want to be that guy. When I was your age, I had to... <laughs> Find video cassettes of anime. It's true. I, I did. You know, like we didn't even have translated or, or subtitled anime when I was growing up, aside from the very few shows that were shown on American TV in the 1980s, like Star Blazers or Robotech or, uh, you know, Voltron, stuff like that. Um, now it's it's a it's a paradise. And I'm I'm envious. I, I this is this isn't something I'm like, hey, you kids, you know, get back to your, <laughs> your VHS decks. I, I wish I had had this access. You, they have access to everything these days. And in real time, it would often be years before we discovered a new anime. But one thing is is really similar. And that is anime is 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 probably one of the last mass consumer media that you have to sort of discover for yourself. Japanese are not great at marketing themselves. They're not great at self PR. The creators tend to be like kind of hermits living this like, <laughs> you know, craftsperson lifestyle in their, in their, uh, in their, in their studios. Like even the big names like Miyazaki are like, I don't know why this is popular abroad. I'm not even going to bother marketing this new movie, whatever, just watch it, you know? And, and that's great. That's, that's actually one of the big draws of, of anime and a lot of Japanese pop cultures because you have to discover it for yourself. That process becomes, it's not consuming, it's almost like a journey. Mm -hmm. And by consuming it, it actually becomes a sort of identity. And this is also why you see some of the most hardcore anime fans are the most passionate and the most, and can be the most aggressive about it because it's difficult to separate the, the content from themselves. 
That's been the case for a very long time with anime fandom in the West. It certainly was the case back in the 80s when I when I discovered anime for the first time. And of course, that was the first time, right? I didn't know that anime had you know, 20, 30 years of history before I discovered it in the 80s. So I love watching and reading stuff like this. As you're like discovering anime in the 80s, as you mentioned, like, what is the culture around it, at least, you know, where you were in the U.S.? Well, I grew up on the East Coast, uh, Maryland, the, the suburbs of Washington, D.C., and it was not a particular hotbed for the import of Japanese pop culture. There were other cities, San Francisco, Los Angeles, you know, places like Honolulu, Hawaii, which had a much larger population of Japanese Americans. Strangely, Boston, maybe Boston had a lot of you know universities and stuff around there. Those places had numerous stores and a lot of different shows broadcast on TV. We didn't really have that in Maryland. And so anime, it, it wasn't even a subculture. It, it wasn't the kind of thing you'd get like roughed up for and stuffed in your locker <laughs> at school because nobody knew to tease you about it. It was so underground back then. So you kind of kept it to yourself. There weren't any dedicated conventions there weren't any dedicated events. You'd have to kind of go to a Star Trek convention and, and like kind of make your way through the Trekkies to find the one guy selling bootleg videotapes at a table. You do like pen pals. Mm -hmm. Remember those letters <laughs> with a stamp on something and put it in the mailbox? Like that kind of stuff. So it was a very different scene than it was today and much more isolated. Mm -hmm. When I do think it's one of those things, like even I've been getting into Star Trek recently, I just watched uh, The Wrath of Khan the other day and I was like, oh, holy shit, I get it. I love it. I'm ready to dive headfirst <laughs> into everything. But even to something like that, you know, I remember growing up and people being bullied for, you know, liking Star Wars, liking Star Trek, you know, oh, liking yeah. Uh, I remember we used to get together like a small group of us and watch Dragon Ball Z and then try to like recreate the fights. I mean, you had to wait like six weeks to get the full fight, right. but it was all things that it wasn't widely accessible. So the amount of people that consume that content was very limited. You know, we had to go to a friend's house who his parents, you know, had traveled kind of throughout the world and they would pick up like cool media for him to watch and consume. And so it's like we had to go to that, as you were saying, you know, finding that one person in the convention. And I think now that we have the the great invention that is the internet, we have Crunchyroll, we have this ability to find anime cartoons really, like you said, whenever we want. Yeah. It has created this sense of people understanding like, oh, this is some good shit. And now the whole world can consume this good shit. It was sort of a code for a long time, like a kind of secret code word where if you encountered somebody who knew what Kamehameha was or knew what like a Macross Valkyrie was. And this is this actually links into what we were talking about a, a few minutes ago about how it sort of formed the backbone of the internet because early internet users were, I mean, this is just shocker, you're sitting down, there were nerds. They were, <laughs> they were really nerdy people. And so there was a lot of overlap, especially among young internet users and, and anime consumers. So this isn't like really widely known, but 4chan, which is a kind of notorious uh, website, but also the vector of a lot of the ways that we use the internet in a modern way, even though it itself has kind of receded into the background, thankfully or, or sadly, depending on how you felt about it. It was not founded as a troll farm, which is what it's known as today. It was founded as a clearinghouse for fans of anime, founded by an anime fan, the, the Moot, who is the original founder of it was an anime kid. 
Um, and he and the first like kind of uh, boards that were on there were all Japan and anime related. You know, and even before that, the kind of more underground websites like Something Awful, they had anime forums and people were making anime and video game memes and things like that. So, you know, there's that 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 sort of like wink and a nod. Oh, you watch anime, too. Now it's not like that. Like everybody <laughs> like right. Miyazaki just won a Golden Globe for for the boy and the heron. You know, anime is like big culture everywhere. It's like the next big thing. It's always the next big thing. Exactly. That's the funny thing about anime. When I know you have talked about kind of this animatized taste that this Western culture is going to, similar to the Otaka super fans of like the 80s and the 90s. And I also do think on the that flip side, as something becomes really popular, you start to kind of fetishize that culture. And I think that sometimes does happen, at least here in the Western world, is that fetishization of Japanese culture and you kind of miss what these actual, you know, creations are about because you're so focused on what you want them to be about. So it fits your narrative. And I see that happen a lot when it comes to Japanese culture, at least in the Western hemisphere. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I, I love anime, you know, anime is great, but kids do not use it as a guidebook to what Japanese culture <laughs> yes. is like. I mean, that would be like, you know, it would be like using like a Christopher Nolan, like Christopher Nolan's Batman movies as a, as a kind of roadmap for what American society is like. I mean, I guess they are in a sense because American society produced those or influenced him to produce those films. But, you know, people don't talk like the Joker in real life. People don't talk like Batman mm -hmm. in real life. And it's the same thing. Thing with anime people don't talk like naruto uzumaki or goku you know these things don't happen so but it's you know it, it's anime is japan's face to the world so it, it's not like i am actually blaming anyone who thinks this for the vast majority i live in japan i moved to japan i learned japanese and i became integrated in the japanese culture but that's rare even now that's pretty uncommon for the vast majority of human beings the way they will interact with Japan is through its popular culture, through its anime, through its gadgets. This is exactly why I wrote Pure Invention, uh, How Japan Made the Modern World, because it's true. We, by consuming these things, we built up this image of Japan in our heads. And we also, you know, kind of Japanized ourselves by consuming the same things that they were consuming. Well, and Japan has been responsible for some of that too. I was reading about this, the concept of like the cool Japan campaign, you know, the branding strategy by Japan to shape the preferences of non-Japanese people through creating and just sharing just like cool shit they're making, you know, rather than coercion or manipulation. Cool Japan is a is a ja is a Japanese governmental initiative. It's not like it's it's not any kind of grassroots thing and it doesn't really make a lot of sense because if something is cool, you don't need to go around <laughs> telling people it is. If the government is telling you something's cool, <laughs> yeah, it's probably exactly. not cool. <laughs> exactly. It's like that's like your teacher to, "Hey, I found this really cool new audio." That would actually instantly like quash any interest in that anime among the kids in the class, I'm sure. Nobody wants to turn to an authority figure to hear what's cool. And then they, they also only promote stuff that's already popular. I mean, think about this. It's like, does something that's already popular really need a boost? It's already viral. It's already something people are consuming. So it's it's kind of misguided. Well, and that's when I was reading like a lot of the like the criticism of Cool Japan. It was, you know, a lot of just like a waste of taxpayer money. Can you create culture or does culture have to create itself? And it's one of those things, if you're trying to force something on others, they're not going to take it as, you know, compared to if 
they're just naturally finding something or they're having a reference from, you know, a friend or somebody they care about. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, I feel like a lot of countries try to do that. They try to, you know, do this thing of like, oh, check out this cool thing that we're doing. Let's force this on you. But in reality, people are like, well, no, I'm going to find your culture through other ways that's not forced upon me. Yeah, I mean, you see it with the Korean government's efforts to uh, popularize K-pop and, and and Korean movies and stuff. It's a common thing. And it's rooted in something that's very real. There's this concept called soft power. And soft power is a term, it was coined by a Harvard political science professor named Joseph Nye in the 1990s. It's the complement of hard power. Now, hard power, everybody knows. Hard power is it's the force that a country uses diplomatically to compel another country to do what it wants. So like you do what we want or we'll send in the tanks. You do what we want or we will like do an economic boycott. You do what we want or, you know, some sort of stick, not a carrot. It's and, and this this is the kind of traditional form of schoolyard power, you know, the strongest side wins, but it's power. You can make the other side do what you want, but they might despise you in the process. Soft power is the exact opposite of this. It is the ability to make other countries want the same outcomes you do because they like you. Mm -hmm. It's a sort of gross national charisma. And what's the deal with charisma, right? You can't buy charisma. Like people have tried, but it, you can't. Charisma has to be kind of earned. Popularity has to be earned. You know, and this is why people get so upset about like celebrities who they think are famous or being famous. They don't think they earned it. They think they bought it, right? Real charisma is something that is a grassroots thing. And no amount of government intervention is going to make some uncool anime or some uncool K-pop group suddenly popular. So this is why a lot of people are like these government – everybody understands why governments are taking advantage of this because it's another form of diplomatic power for them. But it's not something that can be so easily controlled. When we have this massive amount of data readily available to us in terms of how we market to people, how we advertise to people, we try to force things that are not natural. You know, we try to create culture. We try to create cultural moments that, you know, sometimes they do hit, but then other times we're like, oh yeah, we know you're pushing and trying to sell us on something. But if they keep doing that over and over again, you kind of lose what makes that original thing that hit the uniqueness from it. If we're pushing anime to try to be this cultural moment and that pushes Japanese culture, eventually down the line, people are going to be like, all right, we're sick of this. We need something else to replace this that feels unique, that feels natural to whatever that country's culture may be. I think, you know, that that what you're saying taps into a lot of different aspects of, of modern culture and it, like, you know, everything from marketing to algorithms. And it's also one of the big reasons, I think, why anime keeps coming back again and again and again, because it is so resistant to American style marketing. It's so resistant to algorithms. It's most of it is auteur based. It like it comes from it springs from the minds of these kind of weirdo creators, for lack of a better word. I mean that with love, like these very unique sorts of people. And they are given like a wide amount of latitude to keep creating or not create as they want. You know, it's there's a lot of cases where something is hit and the creator's like, you know what? I'm just done. I'm not going to make another thing. I'm not going to make, you know, like for, like Otomo's Akira, it was one of the biggest movies of the 1990s, 1980s, 1990s. Amazing film. He never made a sequel to it. You know, in, in America, there'd be, we'd have Akira 7 beyond like <laughs> yeah. nobody would be going to the theater, but it would be there now. 
you know, and then even when you do have a creator, another, using another 90s example, Ghost in the Shell, like the sequel to that is this very weird not hitting on any of the same feels that the first one did because the the artist, the the director is being given full reign to make his own creative vision. In the States, currently right now, I don't think creative vision really drives the vast majority of mass media franchises. <laughs> it's all about it's all about kind of, you know, algorithms. It's all about audience testing. It's all about predicting what elements of the last one worked and how can we recombine them to make the, to have lightning hit in the same place twice. In Japan, I think the creative process, particularly with regards to manga and anime, is still in place. Like a, a grassroots sort of creative process where you have this marketplace of ideas and the best ideas win. Mm -hmm. And it's why you get such bizarre shit coming out of Japan still, like Chainsaw Man. Or like, you know, there's all sorts of like weird, like wonderfully weird stuff coming out now. Much weirder than you see coming out of American creative outlets, I think. What do you think it is about the culture in Japan that allows for that, you know, free creation? Because, I mean, as an American, I understand, you know, for example, like comic book movies, like the comic book movie fatigue, like at the beginning, those comic book movies were, you know, billion dollar hype machines. But as it goes, I mean, you're recreating this, you know, profit driven model that eventually people just get tired of. And we're like, we want something new. Do you think it is just, you know, Japanese culture isn't hyper focusing on creating a product that's about the money rather than the content? Or is there something else in play? Well, I, I think there, it's a two prong thing. I, and I think you hit on one of them, which is that I don't think Japanese corporations and there are mass massive corporations behind Dragon Ball and behind, you know, Shonen Jump and behind all of these like they're, you know, anime is not made as as as, as some kind of freeform creative expression. It's made as a product to sell. That being said, I don't think Japanese companies in, in particular, most of them, and particularly in the creative industries, are as hyper-focused on like shareholder value as companies like Disney are. And in like, you know, oh, what will the shareholders say? Oh, you know, we must show profits this quarter, you know, so let's turn out another, you know, random Star Wars character who nobody's heard of discussing trade relations for the 90th time or whatever <laughs> the hell the latest Star Wars thing is about, um, you know, and it's because that character tested well, you know, and it's, it, it I don't think the sausage is made that way in Japan. They're, it's it's made in different ways, and and humans are animals that claim to want novelty all the time, but in reality, what they want is the same thing, just a little different, just different enough. Mm -hmm. And what's happening in America is the the creative forces are making things too similar to one another. They're not different enough. Like the latest Star Wars thing or the latest, you know, sequel to The Walking Dead or the latest entry in the Marvel Universe, there's a lot of sameness to them. The Japanese stuff feels a lot different, but it's understandable. Like we, we understand what it is, we can parse it, but it's different enough from American content that it has its own cachet, it has its own pull that is not only different, but enduring because it's cut from a totally different cloth than the things that we're consuming in America are. There is almost this sense of somebody's already made this path for me, at least speaking to American culture, somebody's already made this path for me. And so I'm going to do, like you said, yeah, pretty much the same thing with a slight alteration. We see this a lot in like influencer culture. It's like everyone's doing the same kind of shit. They're all selling the same oh, weight yeah. loss teas. Same thumbnails. Exactly. You find out what works and then you hit it until it doesn't work. And then you go to the next thing. I mean, there's a lot of great art and culture throughout the U.S. that you really have to kind of dig deep to find. 
But when it comes to the mainstream, you're finding less and less success on stuff that is unique. Even talking about, you know, like the Batman movie with Robert Pattinson, who I know plays the heron in that movie. You know, now they're already talking about what's the sequel? What's the TV show? How does this dive into the universe? And you kind of miss the nuance of what made something successful and why it's successful and why that culture and why that art connected to the people in a way that didn't before. So we're getting, you know, again, I don't want to sound like that guy when I was your age, but in, <laughs> in Gen X, in Gen X, when we were teenagers, like the idea of selling out was like the worst thing you can do. Mm-hmm. Oh, you sell out, you know, like I, how, you know, how dare you? Like, and now selling out has become the entire point. And I've spent a lot of time with influencers. I have realized now that like when these guys aren't and gals aren't making their content, all they're doing is like looking at metrics and like A-B comparisons. And part of me wants to say like, well, don't you want to make something that you want to make? Like who cares that thumbnail B didn't do as well as thumbnail A because if you like thumbnail B better or you think it expresses yourself better, but people aren't really trying to express themselves these days. They're trying to to like get on the algorithm gravy train because there's a lot of precarity out there in the world. And like once you make a living or or make a, a certain amount of money as a as a content creator, you don't know how long it's going to last. And so, you know, there's a big difference, I think, now between deciding to become an artist back in the say 50s, 60s, 70s, where you're like, you know what? I'm gonna be poor my whole life. You know, I'm just gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna dedicate myself to this craft and I don't care. Screw you. I'm gonna become a counterculture dropout. And now there's this kind of idea that you can have your cake and eat it too. You can be a creator and you can be fabulously wealthy and successful and a celebrity. But the fact of the matter is there's a trade-off. There is a huge trade-off when you decide to become a modern day creator who is dependent on things like algorithms and like watching audience metrics and like all sorts of things like that. You become a slave in, in a sense to the art form instead of being someone who is being nourished by it or is who is trying to change it themselves. That's why every single thumbnail on YouTube is some guy or gal with a wacky face holding up an object and and, and it's always you won't believe or like stay tuned to caps, the end until everything in caps. Yeah, yeah, everything in caps. <laughs> and I don't blame the people for doing this because making a living from a creative endeavor is crazy. It's just a cra- it was always a crazy thing to do. Always. Now it seems more doable because the tools are available to all of us. You know, even 10 years ago, we couldn't be doing what we're doing right now. Mm -hmm. Now, like some kid in their bedroom can compete with CBS News. Do you know what I mean? Like reaching millions of people, you know, and and the difference is they're talking about action figures or like video games instead of like, you know, the the nightly news. But it's it's a strange world that we live in where we're all brands and we're all hyper consumers. And I think that leads back to Japan, too, if you trace the threads back far enough. You know, when everyone wants to be famous, no one's really famous. It doesn't really matter. Um, but I would like to welcome to the show Matt Alt, the author behind the latest book, Peer Invention, How Japan Made the Modern World. In Peer Invention, Matt reveals how Japan's pop media complex not only entertained, for example, Pac-Man and Pokemon, or Pokemon, sorry, I sounded like my mom there saying Pokemon, <laughs> <laughs> but also reshaped global culture, laying the foundation for the complexities of modern life. As a genuine insider in the world of Japanese pop culture, Matt has navigated the intricate landscape of adapting Japanese entertainment for English audiences. Matt, welcome to Water Cooler Talk. Thanks for having me. So as we march into 2024, we find ourselves at this crossroads for technological development that feels both 
infinite, but in the, the same way is kind of constrained. You know, AI has opened up a world where we have, you know, really yet to see its edges. But at the same time, we have tech powerhouses like Apple, you know, their latest release of the iPhone having fewer and fewer changes, you know, than the previous models, more refinements than evolutions. Reflecting on iconic Japanese tech creations like the Walkman and the Game Boy, how did these devices transcend their, you know, functional purposes? And what lessons can we draw for today's ever-evolving tech landscape? My feeling, and, and I wrote about this at length in Pure Invention, is that the gadgets and services that Japan dreamed up in the late 20th century basically laid all of the groundwork for the modern digital interconnected lives that we all are are experiencing and living right now. You know, whether it's the karaoke machine, this crazy sing-along device that basically made you a star for the duration of a song, it's it's the foundation of all of our modern personal branding, personal celebrity culture that you see today. Look at me, I'm performing, I'm doing something and and all of the the associated features that karaoke machines had, like pitch bending and and like echoes to make even a crappy singer sound like a star. I mean, those are the those are the roots of things like Instagram filters and you know the kind of physics, video game physics that make even fumble fingered people like me feel like Navy SEALs when they're you know in combat. Things like you know the Walkman. Not only was it the first device, the first piece of tech that became fashionable way before the, the iPhone or anything like that. It was the first device that put us in our own little personal media world. You know, you didn't have to listen to the radio or anyone else. You could just put your Joy Division tape on and listen to it over and over again or, or and, and kind of shut the world out. The Game Boy, portable gaming, you know, emoji, anonymous image boards, all of these things were pioneered in Japan by Japanese people, for Japanese people. We weren't even part of the picture way before they took off in the West. So it's like really tempting. Westerners love to think, oh, we invented the internet. We invented social media. We invented Silicon Valley. We did it. Well, you might have invented the tools that are being, or the, or the platforms that are actually being used right now, but you sure as heck didn't invent or pioneer the kind of societies that would spring up around these things. You didn't pioneer the consumerism that was Japanese people. Like you can actually make a really strong argument that social media as we know it wasn't pioneered in, in Silicon Valley at all. It was invented by Japanese schoolgirls on the streets of Tokyo in the 1990s who were taking selfies on these selfie machines and compiling them into books, who were swapping emoji in their mobile texting way before like mobile internet ever took off in the West and were basically pioneering new ways to communicate with one another uh, using like by early adopting and basically hacking new technologies in all sorts of ways. So that's my kind of thesis and it's the book's thesis. And I think it's a strong one. I think when you start unraveling the threads of the fabric of the internet in modern society, a lot of those, they lead right back to Japan, particularly in the 1990s. Reading some of your work and really trying to understand kind of what that thesis is and what it's all about, you know, you, I mean, you talked about like the Famicom, the family computer, you know, laying the groundwork for the software to capture one's attention and laying that groundwork for, you know, Zuckerberg to be able to do that. Two Channel and Mixie being these social media platforms that Japan had back in the day that should have been bigger than they were, but they just never took off. You know, the the taking of ideas from other cultures and finding a way to make it profitable and then claiming yourself as the inventor. I think we see that a lot, you know, whether it be Edison with the light bulb. I mean, 
He didn't invent the light bulb. Edison and Joseph Swan, best known for creating the first successful incandescent filament electric lamp, both developed upon the works of previous inventors in the space such as Alessandro Volta, Humphrey Davy, James Bowman Lindsay, Warren De La Rue, and William State. But he took, you know, creation for that. Or, I mean, even to modern day with um, Elon Musk saying he invented Tesla. No, he just happened to be at the right place at the right time to inherit those inventions. And one of the things I have loved about the internet and being able to, or in people's interest in really understanding the core essence of how did we get to where we are today is I think people are really interested in the truth behind how did the internet actually become? How did the walk right. become? You know, how did we get to this point with social media? And, you know, obviously through books like what you uh, have released here, I think these are opportunities for people to have a better understanding of where things have started from. Because a lot of the times when we look at history, you know, history is going to be written by those with the power and the influence to say, no, I was the person who did that. I'm the kind of person who always wants to get kind of to the bottom of things. You know, the Pure Invention is, is a history book, it's a, but it's also a sort of detective story of me trying to work my way back to the original object that inspired something that's a popular trend now. Mm -hmm. Work your way all the way back to the original object and try to figure out who made it and when and why. You know, what was the, the social, you know, cultural context that somebody invented the Walkman or invented the Game Boy? And I found a lot of really interesting, like the karaoke machine was never patented. That It's crazy to think of now because it's this ubiquitous presence now. And it was invented five separate times by five different people over the course of the 60s and early 70s. And none of them even occurred to them to, to patent it. <laughs> they were just like, oh, you know, I didn't invent the microphone or the tape deck or the, you know, the idea of sing-alongs. How could I possibly take credit for this? And I'm like, well, if you were American, you would have. If you were American, you would have. <laughs> know, right? You definitely would have. But it's and, and now I'm sure if somebody in Japan put different pieces together and made a new device in this way, they would patent it. But back in time, they didn't. And this happened again and again with, you know, the Walkman. Sony did not litigate or go after other companies who copied the device because they didn't feel that it was novel enough. Well, yeah, I know you said, you know, not a single one of the inventors had any idea that they were creating might transform the world yes. and talking about the Walkman. And None it was just like this group of really young, excited Sony engineers that were just like, yeah, we'll give it a try. Yeah. And, you know, I remember tracking down the uh, engineer of uh, the family computer, the Nintendo Entertainment System. His name is Masayuki Uemura. And he was like, man... I was too busy like working on the next project to even think about what I'd created with the Nintendo Entertainment System. You know, they're all craftspeople and taking some kind of problem, some kind of engineering problem or, or some kind of creative problem and, and manipulating it in their mind and, and through trial and error, coming up with a solution to it. And once they do, that was enough for them. You, you don't see a lot of this pandering to the algorithm or like focus groups or anything like that. They're like, no, this is what I want. I wanted this for myself. And so I made it. And that, that kind of creative spirit, I think, is lacking in a lot of spheres, not all of them, but in a lot of spheres today. And it's why you see so much sameness happening and you see so many kind of like blah things coming out. Uh, to create something truly world changing, you can't really be too worried about what the customer is going to think. I mean, obviously, you, it has to sell. If it doesn't sell, it's not going to be groundbreaking. But I don't think any of the inventions in my book, the karaoke machine, the invention of Hello Kitty, the Nintendo, the Game Boy, you know, MOG, anime, None of the people who created these things set out to change the world. They just wanted to make something that they wanted to consume themselves. 
And they turned out to be really awesome, cool people. And that's why the things they made turned out to be really awesome and cool too. So it's, you know, it's a little different today, right? Where you're constantly looking at metrics. What's people thinking about this thing, you know? And whereas these guys and gals were all just kind of off in their own worlds. And and there's a purity to that. And I think it, it's seen in the fact that, that we're still using the descendants of all of these devices and things today. I do think one of uh, the bigger issues with globalization, and there's a lot of positives. I don't want to say it's been horrible that the world is connected now. You know, before you used to create something that was best for your community. Like if my community needed a house, we would figure out a way to build it. But now we've come to this point where it's everything is monetized because there is someone in the world that will try and buy what I'm creating. You know, everything is commercialized because there is someone in the world that I can advertise to, I can market to. And I do think we've lost that sense of creating things because you want to create things. I mean, there's still tons of people, don't get me wrong, that are doing that. But when you look at tech giants like Apple, like Facebook, sure, they're trying interesting things like, you know, the meta universe with Facebook or those uh, Apple glasses that are coming out that are going to be way expensive for anyone to actually use. But at the end of the day, Apple's not potentially never going to create another iPhone. Yeah. And why is that? Why is that? Because there's no Steve Jobs. It doesn't make any sense. It's not cost effective to spend money on research and development for something that may or may not exist. But a part of what makes innovation great is taking that risk to say, sure, this might not turn out, but I believe in this product. I believe there is a place for this product in the world, and I'm willing to go balls to the wall right, my right, right, on that, right, right, right. to create this because I believe in this product. And I think we're losing that because people, yeah, have these metrics that say, well, no one's going to want to buy this. No one wants an iMac, this big old ugly computer. The, the, the idea is not even created yet that people want that. And so people are so fearful of something that we don't even know if we want yet that they're not willing to invest that energy to create it. Well, Steve Jobs of the late Steve Jobs of Apple was a problematic guy in a lot of respects uh, as a manager and as like a, as a parent, as a human being. But <laughs> but when it came to product design, he was an undisputed genius and he knew what he wanted and he made the devices he wanted to see. And I think it's really telling that as a as a you know an entrepreneur. He did not see himself as being in competition with like IBM or Microsoft. He saw Apple as being in direct competition with Sony and not even competition. Like he saw Sony as like senpai, you know, like this big, big brother out there who he wanted to mimic and imitate. Like there's a... there's a story I touch on briefly in in Pure Invention where he tried to name the iMac the Mac Man, and and like his, <laughs> the lawyers are like, "Sir, that sounds a lot like the Walkman." He's like, "Yeah, it sounds like the Walkman," and they're like, "No, sir, you can't do that." And there was like this whole this whole back and forth, and finally they they named it the iMac. But it just goes to show you how deep that like love for and how deep the 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 influence was. Of gadgets made in Japan on on tastemakers in the West. And Jobs is one of the people who got it. And he made the devices he wanted to see. Of course, he wanted to sell millions of them. But it first and foremost started with him saying, do I personally find this cool? You know what? I'm not going to release this until I think it's cool. I mean, it feels kind of Blade Runner in essence, but so many companies owning so or so few companies owning so much, you know, I mean, even into like the gaming industry, like you know, Sony and basically Microsoft and Nintendo are like the three big companies that have, you know, really dominated that sphere, creating these monopolies. 
I mean, even connecting back to Star Trek, you know, I was expecting, man, we would have this really cool future where we have the Star Trek type future. But, you know, it's not it's not looking like it's like that because we're having these gigantic companies that own everything. I mean, these umbrella companies, I mean, especially I, I obviously know more about the business in the U.S., but you realize like five companies own just about every company in the U.S. <laughs> right. And you realize, OK, creating something, for example, like electric cars. Now, instead of having to, you know, obviously put the money in for the research and development, you now have to fight the lobbyists that are fighting for big coal and big energy. And now you're fighting these bigger fights of people that have billions upon billions of dollars. And you're realizing, well, like, shit, that's a hard hill to climb up. Well, and tech and tech kind of zigged where it should have zagged or whatever. Like, you know, we all were kind of anticipating AI would be coming. But, you know, I, I was... I was as I'm dating myself here. I was I was expecting droids. Where's my C3PO? Where's my R2D? <laughs> now we know Star Wars could never happen, not because of hyperspace or lasers or whatever, but because C3PO and R2D2 would be like networked, and I'm sure they'd be like the Empire would be spying on everybody through them, and then would brick them. <laughs> they would say ads every 10, 15 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Pardon me, Luke. Have you have you thought about buying this toothpaste, you know, or, or whatever? Uh, yes, exactly. Like we the idea of like a standalone AI that's like your buddy. Now, AI is not your buddy. It's 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 the kind of like long tentacle of this of this many tentacled creature that's looking to suck all of your information out and sell it to other parties. So it's, it's, you know, the future is weirder than we thought, and it's also more boring than we thought. So <laughs> I think that's the perfect way to describe kind, it. <laughs> kind of like human life, isn't it? If we ever get Terminators, they'll be in hydraulic press videos on YouTube getting millions of views. <laughs> <laughs> they'll be like a Terminator's face, like his eyes, like all wacky. You'll never believe how to crush a Terminator. What happened to this Terminator? Skynet down? <laughs> exactly. Uh, but before we move on, myself and Water Cooler Talk have embarked upon a mission to give back to various parts of the community and those who help build our show to where it stands today. For each new episode of the podcast, the guests will bring with them a charity of their choice to represent. On the day of the episode going live, Water Cooler Talk will give a donation to that charity in honor of the guests, as well as a global platform to spread a message of love, hope, and togetherness. And we invite you listening to this episode to join in to help spread that message to your own personal audience. So, Matt, your charity of choice for today's episode is Second Harvest in Japan. Can you share with us the you know significance of their work, especially in the aftermath of the the earthquake that occurred on New Year's Day? Well, that was a shift in <laughs> energies there. Yes, from- <laughs> a big deal too. I mean, there was a huge earthquake in Japan in the Noto Peninsula, which is an Ishikawa prefecture. It's on the west coast of Japan. It's pretty far removed from Tokyo. It's actually pretty far removed from most major cities, which is the problem. It's arguably one of the worst places to have an earthquake in Japan because so many of the little villages and things that were not only shaken to bits by the quake, but then hit by a tsunami are kind of cut off from the outside world right now. Second Harvest is a relief organization. They've been around for a long time. They're a very uh, respectable and and uh, acknowledged uh, sort of organization. This isn't some kind of fly-by-night group. And they organize you know donations and they use those donations to purchase food and supplies and all sorts of things that are desperately needed by the people uh, in Ishikawa Prefecture in Japan, who are still suffering from the very real after effects of this terrible earthquake. That's one of the things that I've always find comfort in when it comes to catastrophes is how 
humanity comes together to really help and to really put aside differences to say, in the most cases, not every time, but when it comes to disasters like this, people really step up and say, I'm willing to help. How can I help? And I think Second Harvest is, um, as I said, I've had previous occurrences with them, but I think they're a very good, you know, organization that does get the help to where it needs to go. Well, it's like Mr. Rogers said, you know, look for the helpers. Uh, it's true. It, it's, you know, there's, there are people out there who are always willing to help. And I'm, I've actually been touched by the number of people who've said, you know, how can I help the, what's the people up there? And, it's been, of course, the, the the huge topic of discussion in Japan, and I hope if you're listening to this, you do consider donating to Second Harvest and uh, keep the people of Noto Peninsula and Ishikawa in your thoughts. Well, I appreciate you bringing them on the show today. All right, Matt, are you ready to jump into our final news story here? Talk about our inner child. Yes, sir. I have my juice and my cookies and uh, everything <laughs> ready to go. <laughs> All right. This is from Shondaland, written by Sandy Cohen, October 2nd, 2023. A path to well-being. Recognize your inner child. Remember when you were a little kid, and this is one of my favorite openings to an article ever. This is the legit opening that I just copied word for word from the article. Remember when you were a little kid and loved to hula hoop or play with Hot Wheels? How you were always climbing trees, riding your bike, and performing skits with your Barbies and G.I. Joes? Or maybe you remember being scared a lot because your parents were always fighting. That is the first opening stanza of this article. I was like, okay, interesting. Anyways, continuing. According to Lauren Turner, a licensed clinical social worker based in California, reconnecting with the energy of your inner child can have a significant profound impact on your well-being as an adult. Regardless of the memories that may surface, embracing your inner child can infuse your life with more playfulness and offer comfort and aid to help heal childhood wounds. The term inner child was coined by psychologist Carl Jung almost a century ago. His theory suggests that emotions experienced during childhood influence our actions and decisions as we grow into adulthood. Research corroborates this idea, showing that adverse childhood experiences can significantly affect our physical and mental well-being as we continue to age. While the inner child construct lacks scientific validation, New York psychologist David Teisel points out its value in acknowledgement of unmet needs from childhood. By addressing these needs, individuals may move forward and overcome barriers that previously held them back. Teisel says, The value and positivity comes from acknowledging that we possibly had unmet needs as children. And part of the reason we make mistakes or we're in pain or there are any kind of trauma or we act in a rigid way is because of those unmet needs. If we take care of the inner child, we can potentially move forward and let go of what was holding us back. Reconnecting with activities that once brought you joy as a child, practicing self-compassion through reparenting, and revisiting with childhood photos to connect with our innocent aspirations, all can collectively contribute to a more fulfilling and joyful adult life. Embracing your inner child has the potential to spark transformative personal growth, a journey of self-discovery, and could usher in positive changes to how we relate to ourselves and others. So Matt, I, I remember growing up playing Pokemon every summer and Pokemon as, you know, Pokemans? I previously mentioned, yes. <laughs> being dropped off, you know, early at my aunt's house and I would play through Fire Red while I'm waiting for my cousin to wake up because mm -hmm. he, you know, decided mm -hmm. to sleep in every day in the summer. And in those moments I had, it was like an opportunity to, you know, escape. And I find so much joy when I find, for example, a game or, you know, even going back to Star Trek, where I can fully immerse myself into that game or movie or TV show. But when we work back to our inner child, and, you know, maybe this is just some shit I need to work on, but I feel like there's a, a need for imaginative escapism, you know, creative expression. And it's essential to the human condition because... 
you know, otherwise, how the fuck are we supposed to get through this life, Matt? I don't know. Right, exactly. Well, hey, coping mechanisms, they're not just for kids anymore. Right, exactly. But, you know, I do feel like as we've been talking, we share this connection and how anime or cartoons have come to shape our lives, you know, connect back to that inner child. And anime creations have come to help shape the world in ways, you know, I don't think people really understand. I mean, even going back to kind of how you've mentioned, like, Japanese inventions have shaped the world more than we really understand. I think anime cartoons have done something similar. You know, to your own personal life, kind of going back to that earlier conversation we had, how has, you know, anime cartoons or whatever it may have been helped influence and shape your worldview? Well, as a veteran of the battle for Cybertron in uh, the Transformers movie <laughs> of 1984, uh, I now see the world in terms of two transforming armies that are fighting each other for uh, domination. Of course, of uh, course. <laughs> <laughs> on a on a serious note, I I don't know that anime per se has has in, inflected the way that I look at the world, other than to give me a sense of visual aesthetics and storytelling that is different in many ways from uh, that of Western norms. But I am very interested in the idea that modern adults are aging more slowly in many ways than uh, their predecessors. And I wrote an entire article about this for Eon Magazine, A-E-O-N, and it was called The Great Regression. And it is about how the current crop of adults, and I will include myself in this, I would say from basically Gen X on, but it's only been accelerating in the younger generations, how in the past, historically, traditionally in the West, one was expected to put away childish things when they became adults. It's even in the Bible. And there was a very dark line drawn between stuff adults do and stuff kids do. And never the twain shall cross unless maybe you're playing with a, you know, you're entertaining a baby or something like that. Now it is not at all the case that people are graduating from cartoons as they get older. In fact, maybe they're watching more anime as they get older. Maybe they're collecting more toys as they get older. Maybe they're playing more games as they get older. And the mass media and a lot of pundits and and, and opinion writers have treated this as a, as a negative, as like an unalloyed negative. Like, look, look at these giant adult toddlers who don't know how to deal with, with real life. And so I wrote this article to kind of burst that bubble because I don't believe that just because you still play Pokemon as a 38-year-old or, you know, collect Transformers toys as a 49-year-old or watch anime as a whatever-year-old means that you are in a state of stunted development. It just means... <laughs> It just means that you take some pleasure or sustenance or nourishment from these things. And who is it hurting? Who the hell is it hurting that somebody who's like 67 years old likes to play Pokemon or whatever? Nobody. Nobody. And I actually think there's a lot of nourishing aspects to this, too. So when the when the Great Regression article came out, it it, it sparked a lot of debate and, and discussion among a lot of people about, like, who, who is this guy defending and why? But, like... Inner child? I, I don't know. Like, I don't think of myself as like a giant 11-year-old when I'm watching, you know, anime or appreciating, a, you know, or, or spending a probably inordinate sum of money on a new Transformer or something like that. I don't, you know, I don't feel like a, like a tween. I, I feel like my age. I'm just enjoying something that brings me joy. Yeah. Like, wh- so what? I'm like 50 and I like, I like toys. Like, so what? You know, like, fight me, bro. But you have to fight me with those like spring-loaded fists. I think it's also one of those things that's like, I remember growing up, it's like, oh, I didn't have enough money for that toy. But now that I have enough money for yes. it, I'm like, I'm going to buy it. I mean, especially around like Lego. It's yes. like, I, I watch these videos 
where these people recreate like famous movie scenes with Lego. And I didn't have a lot of money as a kid. I mean, I had a few bucks on my allowance. And so now I have the opportunity to, you know, buy these sets that look cool as shit. Yeah, I'm going to do it. I don't care what you think about me. And it goes beyond that. You know, I, I loved Legos as a kid. Like I was a I was a Lego maniac. Is that the word? Uh, I, I loved I loved Legos. But like I, I didn't really interact with them for many, many years. Not out of any kind of like embarrassment or whatever. It just mm-hmm. It just wasn't in my orbit. And then a couple years back, somebody gave me a gift of the big Lego Voltron. Uh, you, you might have seen it. Like it combines, it turns in the lions, it combines the rights. Awesome. And I was like, wow, this is huge. And I ended up building it together with my dad. It's it's a big kit. And you know, my dad and I had built Legos when I was a little kid, but this was just like I needed to get this thing put together. I didn't have enough time. And so he put out this like card table in my in my in the family room of my old house. And it took it took quite a few days to build this thing, and it turned out to be this really meditative experience. And like, you can have conversations with people you might not be able to have if you're looking at them face to face when you're all kind of like putting like little Lego pieces, puzzle pieces together, kind of things. And so it, it turned out to be this really fun thing to do. And I went out and I bought another for the next year. I went and I bought another Lego set, and we built it together. And so you know, this is I think ties back to 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 what I was saying earlier. You know. What, what Charles Eames said, toys aren't as innocent as they look. Like they kind of open us up to new experiences and to, you know, healing and all sorts of other things. So, you know, I, I will never, ever, ever take somebody who says adults who play with toys or giant babies seriously. I think there are people who just haven't found their own inner child yet, so to speak, or haven't picked up a good Lego set, maybe. I don't know. And that's like a lot of what that is. I was there, like obviously very confused on the skepticism of like just enjoying things because it's like, who cares? I mean, it's not impacting you that I'm buying this Lego set or I'm buying these Transformers or I'm watching, you know, this movie or I'm enjoying something. And I think people get so caught up and like you have to be, at least in Western culture, like you have to be productive. You can't be sitting around watching a TV show or a cartoon. You have to be out making money. Productivity is the wheel that moves the cogs of society. And I also think, you know, I was really trying to like really figure out like why is it in Western culture that we're so afraid or not so afraid, but we're so focused on becoming adults, you know, even in Western culture, like once you turn 18, you're an adult. A lot of people grow up in this essence of once you turn 18, you better get a job and get the fuck out of my house or pay rent. Or go join the army. It, join the army. That perfect recruiting for the army. Hey, your parents kicked you out. We'll supply. You know, we'll supply the food, bed you. and weapons. Exactly. But one of the things I have noticed in Eastern culture and Eastern hemisphere is there's a lot better connection around family. You know, people live together as part of families a lot longer. There's not as much of like, hey, you need to get out of the house at 18. No, stay in the house, help, you know, raise the next generation, help support the previous generation. And I remember watching this really in-depth essay that talked about boomers kind of how they've gotten to where they are and what they are and it talked about how you know people living through the great depression they had kids that you know were influenced by the changing dynamics that they had to go through to survive the great depression they were poor exactly and now that generation has to deal specifically here in the u.s that generation now has to deal with World War II, which was horrible, coming back with the PTSD of that, and then them raising the next generation, and then that generation going through the Vietnam War, the Korean War, the PTSD from that. And it was all about 
18-year-old kids going to war, 18-year-old kids having to survive in a time where there wasn't a lot of economic opportunity and saying, you need to be an adult right now. There's not opportunity. There's not time to be a child. There's not opportunity to enjoy childhood. And I think that has really helped or not helped, but shaped how American culture is so focused on you can't be a kid. You have to be an adult. You have to survive. And now there's this preconceived notion that well, yeah, you can't enjoy this TV show because it's for kids. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. Kidulting, which is another way of referring to this big regression, kid adults, kidults. Kidulting is a, in, to my mind, and, and to all the research I've done on this, it isn't a mark of regression in a negative sense. It's actually a mark of being at peace. You know, people in Gaza, people in the Ukraine, they aren't regressing because they have much bigger problems to wrestle with and to deal with. And, and that kind of speaks to what you're talking about. During the Great Depression, nobody's out there collecting baseball cards or whatever pop culture was back at that, at that time because they, they didn't have the money. You know, they're too busy surviving. So the fact that we all have a certain degree of comfort in our lives, um, you know, even though it feels like the world is kind of falling apart around us, it isn't in the way that it could be, if you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Like, it can always be worse. Like, yes, there's a lot of negativity out there. There's a lot of violence out there. There's a lot of, you know, uh, social strife out there. But we aren't in open warfare and we aren't in a economic apocalypse. Um, we might be in a personal economic apocalypse, but we're not in a nation-wide uh, one, like a depression kind of thing. So, And that's proven by the fact that people are leaning into these quote-unquote childish pleasures and pastimes. And it's not limited to things like Legos and stuff. There's entire kind of um, – I remember reading in the paper about like, you know, those big bouncy houses, the inflatable bouncy houses. Well, now adults are renting those for parties and things too. And there's kind of these like adult daycare centers that aren't for elderly people, but for like, you know, <laughs> healthy people to go in and like color and listen to stories and things like that. Yeah. I mean, it, it might seem a little bit weird or it might seem a little out there. Like I don't really want to go color with other people in like a, you know, a mock-up kindergarten or whatever. But again, does it hurt anybody? No. And do you come out of it like relaxed and healthier? Great. You know, then, then it's fine. The other thing I wanted to say about this was that this also links back to Japan, believe it or not. I mean, with me, everything does, right? But this actually really does in the sense that when the very first foreign observers arrived in Japan in the 1850s after it opened the port, one of the first things they noticed was how many Japanese adults were playing with toys and how many toy stores there were all over in, in villages and cities all over Japan. And they're like, wow, this is like, this is really odd. These are totally healthy, normal, you know, balanced people. And yet, you know, when they get off work, they'll go fly a kite or like go spin tops or like do things that you would never see grown men or women doing in the West. So there's always been that kind of attitude that play in context is not a big deal or, or it's not only not a bad deal, it's not a big deal in Japan. Well, and I do really think there is a comfort in things that are fun. I mean, it takes you back to a time when, I mean, you didn't have to worry about bills. You didn't have to worry about wars going on globally. You know, you could just really be in this small, almost like an echo chamber of happiness where you could just focus on that fun. And I think that is, you know, at least here in the Western Hemisphere, that's lost because, you know, we have situations where people are living paycheck to paycheck and, you know, working multiple jobs. And there's so much external stresses that, you know, you kind of lose that aspect of, oh yeah, not every hobby I do 
needs to create money. Just because I'm recording a podcast, I don't care if this podcast makes money. I just like connecting with people and having these conversations. If it makes money, cool. But if it doesn't, also cool. I'm doing this because it brings me joy. Right. And I think so much of, uh, at least in America, so much of American culture is around monetization, the hustle culture, the grind. Everything has to make money. Otherwise, it's not productive. And going back to what you mentioned, you know, we're not a productive cog in the machine if you're not making money. So you're useless to the economy. And that's all that apparently, quote unquote, matters. You know, Japan took a lot of heat in the in the 20th century, like in the 70s and 80s, when it was an economic power for being hyper focused on like, you know, they're, they're just they're faceless armies of salarymen who only care about productivity. But I think Westerners are way more obsessed with productivity than Japan as a nation is. And you see it a lot in Japanese fan circles where people will be making their own doujinshi, which are like your kind of self-published comics or like make their own like kind of original model kits. And they sell them because they want to make like, you know, at least make their expenses back. But I don't think there is this sense that you get in the West that everybody is a diamond in the rough just waiting to be discovered and suddenly you're going to be making a million dollars off of whatever this thing is that is your passion. Like in in Japan among Japanese collectors and Japanese like, you know, producers and content makers, of course there are people who are super ambitious about it just because, you know, there's a wide variety of people out there, but if you go to something like Comic Market, the world's biggest fan convention, it's a it's a manga convention. And not just any manga, it's it's manga that are hand-drawn by amateurs. These are like fanzine kind of things. The people who, who make comic books for sale there are doing it for its own reward. Like, I don't think the vast majority of them are expecting to, like, break out and become the next creator of Naruto, the next creator of Dragon Ball, the next creator of Chainsaw Man. They're just doing their own thing, you know, remixing and doing fanzines and, like, you know, putting male characters into compromising situations because that's what <laughs> fans do. Um, you know, it's and, and it's 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 its own thing. And in in the West, I you know, there's that famous saying that everybody in America thinks they're like a temporarily inconvenienced millionaire. Yep. You know, <laughs> yep. And nobody has money, but they think it's just coming around the corner. You know, and then they'll be a millionaire. You don't get that so much outside of America. And I think that does inflect creation of all stripes. And kind of like connecting back to this idea of the inner child and kind of wrapping up this conversation, I do want to talk a bit about nostalgia. You know, in a previous episode with Philippe de Brigard, we had a conversation about nostalgia and why we, you know, enjoy watching the, for example, the same show over and over again. You know, much of that conversation did come to the conclusion of, you know, we revert to what's comfortable. We find comfort in what we know. And you've talked about your longing of the, and this is your quote, low slung, grubby Shibayu. Shibuya. Shibuya. Uh, and my youth filled with weirds, all sorts. I miss the 50 yen arcades and cheap izakayus. Is that? Uh, izakaya. 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 Izakaya is, I think, how you say it in English. You know, like the little bar. Izakaya. Uh, and even the shifty hawkers of illicit telephone cars that would give you free calls on public phones. How does, you know, reconnecting with those nostalgic moments, you know, connecting back to, you know, your inner child at the arcade, you know, contribute to this deeper understanding of ourselves that does lead to, I think, healthier outcomes? There's healthy nostalgia and there's unhealthy nostalgia, right? When I wrote those words, I was actually reflecting more on it is nostalgia. But, you know, that was a time in my life when I was in college, the future was laid ahead. You know, I mean, it lays ahead for me now, too. But you know what I'm saying? Like, you didn't know what the future held as much as you do when you're a middle-aged person. 
you have a lot of memories of like hanging out with your friends and like, you know, drinking beers and playing video games in our case. It was a fun time. I don't actually know that I would want to go back to that. Like I do you know what I'm saying? And so I, I enjoy indulging in nostalgic pastimes, but I don't actually want to turn back the clock. And I think when you do want to turn back the clock, that's a sign that something is off balance or off kilter or not right. Like that nostalgic moment is better in theory than in reality. Or in indulging in it in context, which is you're indulging in it now, like you're playing Pokemon now. If you take it to an extreme, oh, well, I actually want to be six years old playing Pokemon again. It means you want to erase everything that's happened from the time you were six until now. It basically is a, a form of suicide of your of yourself in between that that period that you're nostalgic for and what you've become. And that to me is not healthy. And this is why I have no issue at all with people who want to, you know, play Pokemon or, you know, God forbid, like recreate their childhood bedroom and play Pokemon in it and dress like they did when they were a kid. But actually wanting to go back to that time is, I, I think, nostalgia can be divided again between that kind of healthy and unhealthy fixation. I like to think of my nostalgia as being a healthy fixation because, of course, everybody likes to think of themselves as healthy. But uh, it's a, you know, it's it's a fine line. I get what you're saying. Like, you have to understand the context of the nostalgia and not live in the past because living in the past can be very dangerous for your present self. And so when you are looking back at your inner child, I mean, yeah, you know, you might have had some moments that really, you know, were amazing and you would, you know, potentially want to go back, but you also have to understand that that's not the reality of life. Like you're in this present moment and to be the best, healthiest version of yourself, you have to understand that Time moves forward. It doesn't move backwards. And we there's a lot of good in mixed with the things that we've lost. You know, okay, great. I'm going to turn the clock back to 1975 so I can collect all of like the Japanese toys that are now like a million dollars. I can just go to a toy. But, like, okay, great. Does that mean I also want like women to not have like equal rights? Does that mean I want like black people to go to the back of the line or like whatever? Do you know what I mean? Like queer people like get bashed, go in the closet, transgender, you know, like nobody healthy, I think, wants any of that. So when we say we're nostalgic for things, we're actually looking to kind of it's almost drug-like right you're like looking to trigger the feels that you got watching robotech when you were like 14 or whatever it was and you you don't necessarily want to to turn the clock back turning the clock back is that's real regression that conservatism that things are wrong now they were better back then is at the root of a lot of kind of bad stuff that's happening in our society. That's nostalgia too. You know, it's nostalgia for a period that I really don't want to go back to. You know, it's one thing to be transforming your G1 transformers. It's another thing to be saying, well, I think people who have rights now, well, I want to go back to when they didn't. You know, because that that is a form of nostalgia. It's a really weird, nasty one. When I think a part of that conversation with Felipe, we did talk about this idea of false memories and how, you know, when you look back at your past, you're remembering something very different than what actually might have happened unless you have photographical memory and you can remember everything. And so usually, yeah, like you're saying, you're creating a memory off of this feeling that you thought you might have had and you might have had that feeling, but most often than not, you're creating something that never really existed. You're putting together fragments of reality in creating this new reality that never existed. And now you're saying, oh, I would love to go back to that. But you're going back to a 
timeline that never really existed. I mean, you'd have to have comic book powers to go back to that timeline you created. Fantasy is always much more powerful than than reality, you know, because it's rose-tinted, it's it's idealized, and it's a virtual construct. It's it's no different from, you know, a virtual reality or something like that. It's a virtual reality that you've created out of a a sort of memory bank in your own head. And just like you said, if you went back to that time, you know, there's probably a bunch of negative aspects to it too, that you've just edited out because there's no focus like kid focus. You know, when you're building those Legos, the whole world falls away. And it's a lot tougher to toggle that kind of hyper-focus as an adult. Because like you said, you got bills, you know, you just had a fight with your girlfriend, you know, you know, I'm hungry, shit, what am I going to have for dinner? Like there's all sorts of things you have to take care of yourself. You were being taken care of as a kid. You know, so being nostalgic for those times when you're able to watch anime all afternoon long. Yeah, because your mom was cooking dinner and like, you know, your dad was earning, you know, money to pay for it or vice versa. Um, yeah, yeah, shit, I want to go back to that too. I hope we, I wish I didn't have to work. <laughs> you know, I wish somebody cooked me dinner. So it's, I, I have very complicated feelings about nostalgia, which is kind of funny because I traffic in it a lot on, on my newsletter and my work. Well, Matt, when I look back at this podcast episode, uh, my nostalgic false memories will say, we didn't have any technical issues. It was a perfectly recorded episode. But Matt, I want to thank you for taking the time to share your perspective on some of the strangest and most bizarre news stories the world has to offer in an engaging, productive, and meaningful conversation. Listeners, if you would like to continue to hear more from Matt, read a bit more of his thoughts on topics covered today or other stories related to Japanese culture, you can do so by following him through his blog at blog.pureinventionbook.com. Once again, blog.pureinventionbook.com. And of course, those links will be included in the episode description and on our podcast website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. So, Matt, just to connect to your blog here real quick, you talk about the illustrious career of Nizo Yamamoto, a visionary art director in Japan. Uh, the background artist. Uh, specifically, yeah, for his you know, background work on you know, Studio Ghibli films. And you share the quote, but where would these heroes and villains be without the dynamic backdrops that accentuate their emotional arcs? This episode was so much focused on what's in the foreground, but I really want to take this question to focusing on, you know, the background and how has, you know, focusing on art and finding artists like that changed your perception of what is art and its meaning? Interacting with art in all of its forms makes us more rounded people, you know, whether it's literature, whether it is illustrated art in the form of graphic novels or comics or anime, you know, when we interact with art, it makes us better, all of us. So I love seeking out people and 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 finding new artists who I haven't been aware of. You know, and Nizo Yamamoto is interesting because I had been aware of him in the sense that I've seen his his clouds and like his backgrounds and so many Ghibli movies and like, you know, he's in he's in the back of, of many other anime films. But he he he's the background. He's not the foreground. And I just love that idea that this man spent his entire career happily, you know, in the background, making the support that other artists could flourish as well. So that kind of also that that kind of cooperative aspect of the creative endeavor I really like as well. Art's a dialogue, you know, and uh, I want to keep that dialogue going. Well, and even like reading through that blog you wrote and then kind of doing some additional research, you kind of miss how much the background creates the world. You know, obviously the foreground and the characters, they're creating the story, but without that background, 
the world is empty. And I mean, you see that in a lot of, you know, movies, TV shows, comics, anime, whatever it may be. If they're not creating that world around these characters, you could have a really good story, but you kind of just as the consumer, you're like, well, I can't really get into this because of that aspect of the background is just not there. It's There's no reality to it. I think so much of corporate storytelling in modern day uh, American mass media is focused on world building and lore building. Mm -hmm. And a lot of modern uh, storytellers could take a page from people like Nizo Yamamoto, who painted those backgrounds for the Studio Ghibli films, because they put so much effort into those backgrounds that they brought the stories and the characters to life in ways they wouldn't have been if they had been against more simple backgrounds. I mean, you can actually say literally the backgrounds of Totoro or the Princess Mononoke are a character in the film under themselves. I think it's true about Akira. You know, he didn't work on that one, but it's another one. And many of the other animated epics that, that we sort of take for granted are really awesome. It's not just the director. It's not just the key animators who are doing all the key frames of the animation. It's also the background people. And that balance is something that when anime does right, does better arguably than any other illustrated medium anywhere. That's something I love so much about like the, the Lord of the Rings franchise is like even down to the costumes, everything was so meticulous and the yes. art form of creating that story was so we're going to create this world that exists not just for a movie, but for the whole atmosphere of, you know, the actors and, you know, dressing up all the orcs and having those numbers. And I think that's what we saw in the difference between, you know, the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit trilogy and how those were perceived by those fans, because there was a lot more fan service and love put into those Lord of the Rings films. And I think in any media, and this is something I've talked a lot about, especially when working with other content creators is... People can tell when you're not putting the love and the care into a product and they will respond. They might not respond right away, but eventually they'll respond and they'll leave your product Grassroots. and you have to yeah, create something you love and get away from, you know, kind of connecting back to everything we've been talking about, getting away from the monetization, getting away from the algorithm and just create something because you love to create it. And I think if more people jumped on board with that idea, and I know it's hard because you got to pay bills, but we can get that Star Trek future. No, it's true. And there's a big difference between building a world, which is something that I think, for instance, Hayao Miyazaki and a lot of other animators are good at, and world building, which to me is associated with, again, corporate storytelling, you know, writers' rooms, and making sure that there's like going to be 10 sequels to the thing instead of focusing on what the thing is. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you, know, you can't buy charisma. You know, we were talking about that with soft power, soft powers for countries, but it's also true. I think of art, you can't pay a ton of money to make a piece of art popular and, and resonate with people. You just have to make a really amazing piece of art. You know, of course you want to market it and all sorts of things. And I get that, but at its core, it has to be a wonderful thing or people won't think it's wonderful. Well, Matt, I'm going to ask you to create some wonderful art right now. We have arrived to my favorite part of the podcast, the moment where I get to entrust you with my show to close it out however you see fit. You know, considering everything we've just discussed, the profound beauty of art and its meaning, you know, living our second childhood, I think it's only right to encourage a celebration of imagination and share wisdom in a way that connects to something deeper. You know, a, a pressure-laden moment for sure. But one, you know, Matt, I feel extremely confident you can excel in. You know, the room is hushed. The people wait. The stage is yours. Wrap up our conversation in a way that leaves the listeners satisfied, but yearning for more. Oh, wow. 
This is a heavy, heavy task, but that's why I don't want to do it. I, <laughs> don't outsource. This is the problem with this. Is, this is literally the problem with uh, the problem with globalization because now you're asking somebody in Japan to do the heavy lifting for you. Um, <laughs> I, if I if I can say any one nugget of wisdom or anything, I want to say something that's like really witty and funny, but I'm going to say something that's not. And that is because people often ask me, like, how did I get to where I am? And the difference between somebody who achieves their dreams and someone who didn't is really simple. It's just the person who achieved them kept trying no matter how many times they got knocked down, no matter how many failures they had. They just didn't let go. And, you know, they might take a break for a while. It's not necessarily a linear path. But the difference between people who, you know, get what they they dreamed of, of setting out to do and those who don't is that one doesn't stop. So don't stop. Keep going. I love it. You're, you know, Michael Jordan and his flu game. You stepped up when you needed to and you, you won the game. I <laughs> Did I sink that, that shot? I hope so. I think you did. Um, yeah, no, I very much appreciate um, having you on, you know, this is a conversation I was really looking forward to because one of my goals for this year was to expand these stories into the Eastern Hemisphere, not just because I wanted more listeners, but because I really wanted to understand the cultures that make up half of the world. And I appreciate you being open to this conversation and you know, working through the technical difficulties to um, have a really fun conversation. Well, I had fun too. Thanks for having me on. Listeners, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, the show will be over. Peace. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. <laughs> 